Good night. Good evening, guys. How you doing tonight? Good. All right. I'm excited about tonight. It's going to be a uh, good word. Uh, been really, really been enjoying this God's Generals series that we've been doing. Uh, tonight's a little different. Instead of an individual person's life that we're looking at, we're looking at a series of meetings that took place uh, back in Kentucky around the turn of the 1800s. So uh, before we get into that, though, I'm going to go ahead and open us up in prayer. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this time. We ask, Father, that you be with us tonight, that you speak through me, Lord, and that, Father, there be good fertile soil out there, Lord, that the lessons that you want conveyed, Father, are come through and that it becomes a part of the spiritual DNA of each person out here, Lord, and that we're able to learn um, from those that have gone before us, Father, and that we're able to, to stand on their shoulders and to, and to go farther and to see more than even what they saw. Um, and we thank you for that. Lord, I ask that every uh, ear be attentive tonight, Lord, and that, uh, that you speak freely, Lord, and, and that what you want to come forth is conveyed. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys. So last time we met, guys, we were talking, um, and at this century, or this time in American history was right after the American Revolution. So if you remember last time we were talking about the life of Francis Asbury, who was one of the Methodist circuit riders, uh, who came about right as the turn of the American, or the American Revolution came about. Prior to that, we talked about George Whitfield, the Wesley brothers. So now we're basically, we're right at the turn of the 1800s, so we're about... 20 years after the American Revolution. And um, we're going to be talking about what's called the camp meetings, or the, the first camp meetings, sometimes called America's Pentecost. Um, and it took place in Kentucky. Now, most of us would think about Kentucky, and we kind of say it's near the East Coast. At best, it's central, you know, kind of central U.S. Um, back then, that was the West. You know, you always hear, go West, young man. So that, that was the West of the day. That was the that was the frontier. That was where people that were the adventuresome explorers, that's where they were spending their time. Um, actually, Daniel Boone, if most of us are familiar with him from school, he was in this area of Kentucky at the same time that this type of stuff was happening. So just to kind of give you a little bit of historical context. Um, the camp meetings that we're going to talk about, uh, we've got a quote here from Francis Asbury. It says, I wish you would also." also hold camp meetings. They have never been tried without success. To collect such a number of God's people together to pray and the ministers to preach and the longer they stay, generally the better. This is field fishing. This is fishing with a large net. So what Francis is saying is, you know, when the brethren come together, right, and and they're praying and they're seeking God, they're taking communion, that it creates the atmosphere where the Lord is able to move and is able to call people in it's in fishing with a large net. You've got the whole community coming in. So tons of people are hearing the salvation calls and giving their lives to the Lord. And that's what we're going to study a little bit about today. So Kentucky, as I started to say, is America's western frontier. Um, in 1792, Kentucky became America's 15th state. And interestingly, it was the first state outside of the original 13. So any, a little bit of trivia. Anyone, under, anyone know how... Kentucky could be the 15th state and also the first out of the original 13, besides Pastor Scott. All right. So Vermont, guys, was uh, actually the 14th state. Vermont was originally part of either New York or New Hampshire, depending on who you talk to. If you talk to New Yorkers, it was part of New York. If you talk to people from New Hampshire, it was part of New Hampshire. 
they could never come to an agreement uh, over that disputed land, so they actually let it become its own state and became Vermont, which was the 14th state. So Kentucky is the 15th state, but the first state out of the original 13. So that's where uh, what we're talking about is it basically took place. Uh, Kentuckians in general, guys, um, these weren't your pilgrims that came to America seeking religious freedom. These were the people that were here that if, they, if they've gone as far west as Kentucky, it's probably because, one, either they're looking for land, right, and they're adventurous. They're explorers, so they're hunters, they're traders, they're going out to these new places where there's lots of natural resources. Or a lot of them were running from the law. <laughs> so they something had happened on the East Coast in Philadelphia and New York and Boston where most of the people were. They'd gotten in trouble, and they went west where the law wasn't. So kind of a rough crowd that... Uh, that uh, was in this land. And another quote from Francis Asbury, when I reflect that not one in a hundred came for religion, but rather to get good land, I think that it will be well if some or many do not eventually lose their souls. And this is him talking about the people of Kentucky. So we talked a little bit about how the Methodist circuit riders at that time were going out last month. We talked about how they were going out into kind of the undeveloped lands. And wherever people were going, they were following with them and bringing the message of, of the gospel of Christ. Um, in addition to that, there were other ministers in, in other um, denominations that were going out. Reverend James McCready was actually a Presbyterian minister and he had a successful congregation in North Carolina, but he felt called to go out to Kentucky. So he went to an area uh, called Logan, Kentucky, and he pastored there three congregations that were along the Gasper, the Red, and the Muddy Rivers. Um, so, I mean, just kind of, if you can stop and picture the Muddy Rivers, the Gasper, and the Red Rivers, you know, not, not very civilized places. I don't imagine there were probably too many roads there. These were the, the frontiersmen of the day, and there weren't enough people gathered in one town or one establishment for him to, to just have a, a church there. So he would go between three different, uh, basically, civilizations and, and preach and teach uh, at those places. Uh, McGreedy was uh, known uh, for his moral seriousness and for his holy lifestyle. And it was interesting because the people that were true Christians, those that were seeking God and that were humble, they loved him. They loved his messages. It convicted them. It made them better. It challenged them. Those in the church that were maybe not as uh, not wanting to live that way, and then some of the more religious people in the church, and then the sinners, they didn't like him very much. In fact, uh, they came against him pretty heavily. They said at one point someone broke into his church. Uh, they ripped up all of the chairs. They burnt his pulpit, and they left him a note written in blood that said that he should leave town or his life would be in danger. So, you know, not, not just a little, not just a, a mean word on, on the street at Starbucks, right? I mean, these people were pretty serious. Um, well, McGreedy, he, he kind of took that as a challenge. And the next week, he preached a sermon that's based on the scripture, Matthew 23, 37, and 38. That says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look now, your house is left to you desolate. So basically he was saying, he was those people had challenged him and he came back and, and was preaching basically against them and was not going not gonna to leave, not going to back down and was going to continue forward. 
Uh, Barton Stone, who we'll talk a little bit about later, uh, he was a reverend that was very influential during these camp meetings. Uh, he heard McCready uh, preach at a pastoral school at one point, and this is what he had to say about McCready. He said, Such earnestness, such zeal, such powerful persuasion, enforced by the joys of heaven and the miseries of hell, I had never witnessed before. My mind was chained to him and followed him closely in his rounds of heaven, hell, and earth with feelings indescribable. His concluding remarks were addressed to the sinner to flee the wrath to come without delay. Never before had I comparatively felt the force of such truth. Such was my excitement that I had, been, had I been standing, I probably would have sunk to the floor under the impression. So McGrady had a way with words, and they said that um, he wasn't as dramatic as a, as a Whitfield, and he didn't have the intellectual prowess of, uh, let's say, a Wesley. But he would take the, the truth of the gospel, and he would speak it to people in very plain language, but that would, that would cut to, through all the, the concerns and the cares of the world of that day and get to the heart of the matter, and it convicted people. And, and a lot of people, you know, as Pastor Scott will say, the same uh, light that, that melts wax will harden clay. So some of the people melted as wax and, and, and were humbled before the Lord, and, and their lives reflected that, and they became better people. Others hardened against him and broke into his church and burned his pulpit. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the challenges that some pastors face. All right. Um, so the annual communions. Uh, we talked a little bit about how uh, McCready couldn't just have a single church. So what he would do, um, once a year he decided he was going to gather all the congregations of all three churches because even those three churches, these people weren't all living right by each other, right? This was the frontier, and they, w- they went to the frontier to get land. And this isn't like our land where we say, hey, we've got five acres, we're doing well, right? I mean, they would go and take like tracks of hundreds of miles of land, you know? So these people, when they came together, it, it, it meant that they would have to pack up a wagon, probably bring the family, and they may ride an hour or two hours just to get to church. So when, when he had three different churches coming together, you've got a, quite a wide geographical spread. So what he did was he decided, and he had seen this back in North Carolina, and then prior to that, um, his family was from, I think, Scotland. And this was something they said that Scottish pastors did. But once a year, they gathered all of the congregations together, and uh, they would spend an entire weekend there where they would hear preaching, they would fellowship. I'm sure they did potlucks like we do today, right? Um, and then on the last day, they would take Holy Communion or Sacrament together. And it was something that helped bring all three of his churches kind of together in a family. And it's interesting that, you know, we, we pastor teaches so much on communion and what it, what it really means and the power of it. Um, during, these, during these sacrament or, or annual communion services, it, it said, if you read through the chapter, that normally on... Um, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they would be okay meetings, but not a whole lot really tended to happen. And then on Monday was when they would take the sacrament or the communion together. And almost every time when they did that, the power of the Holy Spirit would fall. And that's when they would see God manifest among the people. And uh, we'll get to it later, but there were some crazy manifestations and some things that, um, honestly, that I, I had always thought that, you know, you hear about Azusa Street in the early 1900s, and the Holy Spirit kind of being restored to the church at that time. Well, if you listen to the accounts of these people, which were at the turn of the 1800s, 
the same manifestations of the Holy Spirit that took place in 1900 and that took place in 1996 through 2000 at like Brownsville and took place at Toronto. They happened back in Kentucky in the, in the early 1800s. So that was, that was pretty cool for me personally to discover. All right. Of course, we've got the scripture out of uh, Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28 that say, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, again, guys, there's power in the communion. There's power in taking the juice, which represents Jesus' blood, and the, and the wafer, which represents his body. And McCready understood that, and it was seen throughout these, these uh, annual communion in the camp meetings. So the first, uh, first camp meeting took place in July of 1798. It was held at his Gasper River congregation. And basically, they brought all three of the fellowships together to hear from God. And um, it was, you know, it sounds like it was a good service. They saw, um, they felt the presence of the Lord, but there wasn't anything super, or spectacularly supernatural about that. The next year, um, in July of 1799, they held their second annual communion. They had, had it at Red River. And in that one, he actually decided he was going to invite other ministers of other denominations and other congregations to join with them. And again, this was something that they had done in Scotland and had been successful. So um, Presbyterian ministers John Rankin, William Hodge, and then William McGee. And then William McGee's brother was John McGee, who was a Methodist. And uh, they joined. They all joined together in the second communion. And uh, John McGee wrote, or I'm sorry, McGreedy later wrote to his friend that the mighty power of God came amongst us like a shower from everlasting hills. God's people were quickened and comforted. Some of them were filled with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Sinners were powerfully alarmed and some precious souls were brought to the to feel the pardoning love of Jesus. So again, now you've got groups of people coming together across denominations. And we know that scripture that says, where the brethren dwell in unity, there I'll command my blessing. And I think that's something that God really does honor. And it's something that I think, you know, pastor does a good job with us and that we're reaching out. We're not, we're not based in, we're in this denomination or that denomination, or we can only communicate with these people. We can only fellowship with these people. God is moving throughout his whole body and there's stuff to receive in all of these different places. And, and you're starting to see that a little bit, even back like in the 1800s, McCready saw that with some of the people that he, he brought together. All right, so um, fast forward one year, Red River, June 1800. This is when you start seeing some of the more supernatural things happen. Again, the same group of ministers came together. So some Presbyterians, some Methodists, um, they, they meet, they come together. Uh, as I said earlier, the first three days of the, of the communion pass, nothing real supernatural happened. It comes to the day of the communion. They, they, they hear the first preacher get up and preach. Another preacher, um, John McGee, uh, gets up to the goes to the pulpit to speak, and suddenly he feels the presence of the Holy Spirit. And instead of getting up and giving his message, he starts singing a song. It says he sings, "Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours." And as he's singing this, a woman in the crowd burst out with a shriek. 
and she she's immediately she she sees her sin in her life and she comes to know that Jesus could be her savior and she receives his pardoning grace and this excites McGee right so he goes down to to uh, to congratulate her and to say thanks and when he does this his brother William McGee goes to take the pulpit well as William McGee goes up to the pulpit the power of God hits him so hard that he falls out immediately and he's down on the ground. So now John's out there with this lady. He sees his brother and he's like, I got to go find out what's going on. So he goes over to check on his brother. And as he gets there, he, he stumbles and the power of God is so powerful that he can't, he can't operate. So, um, and again, guys, you have to imagine, we see this, right? We, we've seen that it's, it's a little more commonplace. Back at that time, they didn't know what was happening. They, they, you know, why, why are they doing this? What's, what's going on? Um, and the other ministers, um, John Rankin, William Hodge, William McGee, they were, they were talking about, should we, should we intervene? Should we stop this? And, and this is one of the revival warnings, guys, that I'm going to talk about in here is just because God's doing something that you haven't seen him do before, you can't automatically just shut down because God, in almost every revival, he's, he's done something a little different, right? He's a God of patterns, but he's not the same at any point. And, um, you know, that's where it's, it's uh, incumbent upon us to understand the Holy Spirit and to, to hear his voice and to know so that when something does happen, we can understand if it's of him or not of him. Um, thankfully, John McGee, who was, was known as a shouting Methodist, had seen God moving a little bit and, and convinced the others. He said, no, let's, let's let this go. Um, and, and, and John McGee, he says, uh, he's describing at this point when he went back to his brother. He says, I turned to go back and I was near falling. The power of God was strong upon me. And I turned again, losing sight of the fear of man. And I went through the house shouting and exhorting and all, with all possible ecstasy and all energy. And the floor was soon covered with the slain. So he turned and he went and he's praying and people are just falling out under the power of God and they're just laying everywhere. And I'm sure at that point, all of these ministers were just looking around going, what just happened here, right? But it's, it's the Holy Spirit and he's moving. And so all of a sudden, you know, there's something going on in Kentucky, right? Out in the wilderness, out in the frontiers land that hasn't been seen in the church, you know, in, you know, a long, long time. So um, the next... Let me think here. All right, so now we're going from uh, June to July. So instead of waiting for an entire year, they were like, something pretty cool just happened here. We probably need to get together again. So the, uh, the next month in July of 1800, they meet at Gasper River. Um, and this is what is really, uh, a lot of historians will say, this is the first true, what they call a camp meeting. And the reason they say that is they had outgrown the building, the inside buildings, right? They, the, most of the buildings in that day, the max they could hold um, was, you know, anywhere 300 to 500 people. Well, now, uh, you know, if you lift Jesus up, he'll draw all men unto him. And then you get the people that are coming that are just curious. They heard about this weird thing that happened where all these people fell on the ground and they want to go see it. And then you've got the detractors coming that are like, that's not of God, and you know they're there. So you get this massive influx of people, and they've got too many people that can fit inside. So they, they clear ground outside of, of the main building so that they can start having a tent meeting out there. Um, and in this, in this meeting, the conviction of the Holy Spirit fell um, almost without bounds. So you had your, you had your uh, pious, kind of your religious people there. You had the universalists who, you know, 
They believe in, in everything. You have the atheists who don't believe in anything. You've got the deists and the gods. So you've got all these people here and the, and the Holy Spirit is just free moving around them and, and people are just getting knocked down by the power of God and they're, and, you know, they're kind of spread out everywhere. And the, and the thing that, some of the things that as I read through this, guys, that were exciting to me was um, the people that were preaching, right? There were actual ministers preaching but uh, you had so many people, and they were in almost like an uncontrolled environment. To man, it would have looked like chaos, right? I mean, there's thousands of people just out in the field. But these people that were uh, having these experiences with God, some sinners were going down, getting slain in the Spirit, were going down to the ground, um, you know, in, in the state of sin, and coming back up righteous, born a new creation, right? And they would start preaching immediately. And they said they would speak with eloquent words and they had messages of, of just passion and they would tell of how good Jesus was. And this was happening all around. And then others would get convicted and would fall down. And then the same thing would happen. And it wasn't just a pastor and it wasn't just men. There were women, there were little children, there were old men. And this was happening, you know, it was kind of going across. One story here, a little girl leapt from her uh, mother's lap um, after being there a while and cries out, Oh, he is willing, he is willing, he has come, he has come. Oh, what a sweet Christ he is. Oh, what a precious Christ he is. Oh, what a fullness I see in him. Oh, what a beauty I see in him. Oh, why was it that I could never believe that I could never come to Christ before when Christ was so willing to save me? So you've got, you know, you got a little girl, you know, that's that's exhorting others and calling them to Christ. And it says after this, she turned around and she started telling them of the glory and the willingness and the preciousness of Christ, and just pleading with the people around the around her to repent and to and to come to Christ. And they said, you know, it was in a language that was was heavenly and it was rational and it was scriptural, and yet it's coming from this little girl, you know, and out of the mouths of babes, right? It talks about and and all those around her were astonished. And this was kind of what they were seeing. So they continued these annual communions. Um, so in Muddy River in August of 1800, there were like 50 more people saved. In Shiloh, there were 70 saved. In Muddy Creek, there were 12 saved. And th- these kind, these uh, communion meetings, they would have them about once or twice a month. And that continued throughout 1800. But everything kind of led up uh, through that time and through the early spring of 1801 to what um, was known as the Cane Ridge Revival. And this occurred in August of 1801. And this is kind of where God just blew the top off of everything. And uh, I talked to you earlier. I said, you know, Barton Stone had heard McCready, McCready preach. This was a, his congregation was basically the one that was hosting this annual communion. Um, and they had, again, they had a building that held about 500. They had cleared a big space. They had rented a tent. And they had invited anyone and everyone they could they could to come come and to uh, partake. And as that um, as those the, the day of or the weekend of the event approached, um, you know, on on Friday some some number of wagons come in. Saturday more come in, and then by Saturday midday mid even there's 1,150 wagons. You have to realize the town of Lexington, uh, Kentucky, which was the big town by that place only had 1,750 residents at that point. There were only 250,000 people in all of Kentucky. You've got 1,150 wagons, and they estimated between 25 and 30,000 people gathered together that weekend. So again, as Asbury said earlier, you put a whole bunch of God's people together, you praise Him, 
and he's going to show up. It's a wide, it's a, it's fishing with a wide net, right? So um, we're now, we're in um, the, the what's again the Cane Ridge revival. Uh, it was interesting. There were so many people there that they would just set up little. They would they would stand on tree stumps. They would set up little, uh, build little platforms. Uh, they would stand on top of carry or uh, wagons anywhere they could preach. And sometimes they'd have up to seven different. I guess you'd call them official preachers at a time that were giving words, but yet amongst the people, there were people that were being touched by God that were, were getting, um, you know, were falling down, were getting up, and they were getting up and preaching to those around them. So again, if you're looking from a man's point of view and you're looking at this, it had to look like utter chaos. I mean, and we're going to talk here in a minute about some of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that took place. And uh, as we set that stage and as you hear about what, what's going on, uh, you, you'll understand why some of the people that would, that came, um, they said that the, the scene that they arrived at was new, it was strange, and it was baffling beyond description to many in the audience. Men were falling as slain in battle and lying for motionless for hours. Children, men, women, all ages, all educational backgrounds, all social classes were declaring the wonderful works of God and the glorious mysteries of the gospel. And uh, their appeals were solemn, heart-penetrating, bold, and free. Here's another story of a young girl. So she, cri- she climbs up on a man's shoulders to preach and to, give, and to speak um, out to the, to the crowd. And they say that her words are far beyond her years. And she preached for a period of time. But again, she's seven years old. So she gets tired. And she puts her head down. She rests, right? Like you've seen so many little, little kids do. And someone there who's, you know, a kind gentleman looks at her and, and says, Oh, look at the, you know, the poor little one. She's tired. Someone should, should put, her to, put her down. And uh, at that, boom, she pops back up. She, she comes back to life and she says, she says, Don't call me poor, for Christ is my brother and, and God is my father. And I have a kingdom to inherit. And there, therefore do not call me poor, for I am rich in the blood of the Lamb. And, I mean, can you imagine a little seven-year-old? You're going, oh, you poor little thing. And she pops up and gives you and re- gives you a holy rebuke right there, right? So, um, and, and that was just kind of, that was kind of commonplace, guys. That's what was happening. And uh, a lot of people didn't know how to respond to that. There were, I mean, there were those that were fully engaged in it. There were others that were like, this is, this is too much. And, and we'll talk a little bit about a story of a man that tried to kind of run away from it. First, though, I kind of want to, I want to talk through, though, some of the different manifestations of the Holy Spirit. So one of the nice things about Reverend Barton Stone was he was very good at documenting and keeping track of everything that was going on. So he kept very accurate uh, descriptions of what he saw while he was there. And uh, I listed out some of these manifestations, and we're going to talk a little bit about them. So, um, and again, guys, you've got to remember, this was 1800, so they talked a little bit differently than we, we did but you now, but... They called, the first one they talked about was the falling exercise. And we, we're, we're familiar with that, right? That's the power of God comes upon you. It's, it's more than what your physical flesh is able to handle. And it, it will cause you to fall down. Um, now, he, he described this as, as a person would fall down with a piercing scream. And they would fall to the floor like a log and, and stay there and appear almost as if dead. And, he, and it was interesting because he noted that some of these manifestations happened only to those that were saved. Others happened to both the sinners and the saints. And he said, this is one that basically, uh, it happened to both. It, but, you know, those that had been saved, those that didn't yet know Christ. 
But he said it was interesting. They would lie there for hours with just gloom on their face. And he said sometimes they would kind of come to for a period of time and they may say a prayer or they may say something and then, and then they'd almost go back under. Um, but at some point, the countenance on their, on their face would change. And, and it went from a gloom and, and almost a terror or a fear and, and it would become bright. And they said it was like a heavenly countenance came upon them. And at that point, they would, they would jump up and what we now what we know happened was they basically they'd gone through their period with the Lord and, and they they decided to make him the Savior and they would hop up and they would and, and the, the heavenly joy and the countenance would be on them and they would start preaching then and they would start exhorting others to, to feel the same and to see the same and one of the things I thought was really interesting it said that even some of the saints would have this experience but they would as they would do it it was a sense of danger for their loved ones so maybe a brother or sister a mother a daughter um, a husband a wife um, or their neighbors or even just the sinful world so we think about you know we get together every tuesday and and we go through our prayer meetings and we intercede on behalf of not only ourselves but the city we live in the state we live in our country the body of christ the the world and, and the same thing was happening back then. They were, they were called to intercession and they were falling out and going through the travailing and the groans and the moans um, on behalf of others. Uh, so, so that was the first one, the falling exercise. The next one was descriptively called the jerks. So this one, um, they said at times, um, a pers- sometimes it was just a, a certain member of a person's body, so maybe an arm or your head. Sometimes it was the person's entire body would jerk forth, you know, left and right, forwards and backwards. And they said it was so violent that when it was their head that was doing it, that it was moving so fast that you couldn't make out a person's facial features. They couldn't be distinguished. And then they said some of the people, when it was their whole body, they were going backwards and then forwards to the point where their head was almost touching the ground in front of them and then almost touching the ground backwards as they went. And, and this one also happened to both the saints and, and those that were not yet saved. But it was interesting because as he talked to those, most of the saints that this happened to, they described it as some of the happiest moments of their life. And they, in, in either side you talked to really didn't have a recollection of exactly physically what was going on. But yet when the, while this was happening, those that, were, that already knew the Lord were experiencing great joy and, and I'm sure they were just communing with Him. Well, the, the sinners, they said, described it um, not quite in the same not quite in the same way. They said it was a cursed experience, and that I'm uh, I'm, I'm sure that it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. Um, again, just like the people that were on the ground were going through something with the Lord, I'm sure they were going through the same types of things as they were jerking back and forth. Um, but again, one thing I thought, and I thought this speaks to the character of the Lord. They said not a single person sustained a bodily injury while this was happening, which again, I think just talks to the Lord. So, All right, so the next was the dancing exercise. Uh, this is the first one that really only occurred within the believers. And basically what would happen was while someone was going through the jerks, right, and they're going back and forth, all of a sudden that would shift from that into more of a, a rhythmic dancing. So they said they would go back and forth, and sometimes it was fast. Sometimes it was slow, but basically they would they would be dancing back and forth in, in this motion to the point where they physically got to a point of exhaustion and then would fall out. And they said that, um, but that it was it was again it was a joyous thing. And even once they fell out, they were praying to God and just thanking Him for the experience and praising Him in it. So so that was the dancing. 
the barking exercise. All right. Um, so again, we the, the jerk seemed to be a very popular thing. So this one is, was the jerk, but this time it also included a grunt or a barking noise. So as these people would start to jerk back and forth, I'm sure they let out some type of a, of a holler, a grunt, a, uh, you know, something. And um, so this became known as the barking exercise. And it was funny, there was a story in there about one Presbyterian minister who... Um, you know, and again, guys, we talked about this was kind of out in frontiers, right? So some of the people would go out into the woods when they feel the power of the Lord coming upon them. Maybe they didn't want everyone to see that. They wanted a little privacy. So this gentleman had gone out into the woods, and he started having the jerks, and then he started the barking exercise. And uh, someone else came upon him, and I guess um, while he was doing this, he had grabbed a hold of a tree because, you know, he was starting to jerk. He didn't he want to sit up. And someone came upon him while he's looking up like this on the tree, and he's barking. And I guess they said that they found him barking up a tree. So uh, we've heard the expression barking up a wrong tree. I don't know if this is where it came from, but they found him barking up a tree. So, all right. These next three I really am excited about, guys. The laughing exercise. So they said um, the people would let out, and this is again one that only occurred um, in the believers, so those that had already accepted Christ. The person would let out a hearty, loud laugh. Um, but they said it wasn't, um, you know, we, we see a laugh a lot of times now, and you know, with what happened um, with uh, Pastor Rodney's ministries and things, uh, Rodney Howard Brown, thank you, couldn't think about that. Uh, a lot of times that laughter is infectious and contagious, right? This was a different laughter. They said the person would start laughing, and instead of it, um, bringing like joy in everyone, it would create a very solemnness and like a like almost a, like a holy sadness in those around them. And they said it was very um, almost unworldly or indescribable because you've got one person that's just laughing and just in a, what would seem like a joyous thing, and everyone around them would just feel the like the heavy like seriousness and uh, of God. And I, I just I thought that was that was an interesting manifestation. Uh, the next one, guys, the running exercise, which almost sounds like a workout, doesn't it? Uh, and, and guys, I think we see this even today. So some people, they come into the presence of the Lord. They don't know how to handle it, right? They start feeling things. They're not sure what's going on in their emotions. They're not sure what's going on in their physical body. And their first reaction is, I just need to leave. Something is weird here. And uh, so these people would start running away, right? And uh, most of the time, as they would run, the Lord would look down and go, Doo! and uh, they would fall out. And uh, they didn't make it said they didn't make it very far um, and they would they would again go through their time that they needed to go through with the Lord, and then they would wake up a new creation, and they would you know they would come to know Jesus Christ. So it ended up being a good thing, but some of them did try to run. And finally, guys, the last one that that Barton Stone describes is the singing exercise, and I thought this one was awesome. So the subject who was singing would not sing from their mouth nor their nose, but entirely from their breast. And, such, and they said that when this happened, so think about it, your mouth is closed and yet you're singing. Uh, when this happened, they said the music uh, silenced everything else and attracted the attention of all. So they said it was, it was such a heavenly noise um, and every, that everyone around them, even like the preachers that were preaching, if it happened, they would stop and everyone would just pay attention to what was going on. Um, and there was a doctor there, his name was J.P. Campbell, um, and he saw this, and he said, he said, I can only conclude that this surpasses anything which is known in nature. 
So, you know, you're not supposed to be able to sing with your mouth closed and the noise coming from inside of you. Um, but, you know, when the Holy Spirit is there, it's Him singing out through you. And, and it, it was such a such an awe-inspiring thing that everyone around them, even in the midst of all this chaos, would just stop and, and listen to what was going on. So I thought that was pretty amazing. So the question comes up. Why, so why does God do this? Why, why would he go through, I mean, why would he make someone jerk back and forth? And why would he go, why would he send some people running and, you know, others barking and things? And, um, you know, it, it's because he cares for people and he loves people. And, and, he, and at this time, in this, where he was at, in Kentucky, this, this wasn't a, the majority of people weren't a group of saved people. They weren't a people that already knew him. And a lot of them, they said, um, the universalists were there and the deists were there. And a lot of people had just given up on, on the God of the Bible. And, and they, they, they thought it, he wasn't real. And they, they, just, they were ready to basically dismiss him. So it wasn't, you know, you couldn't just come and give an eloquent message. You couldn't just give them a good, a, preach a good word on Sunday. That wasn't going to be enough. They, they needed to, to see God and, and to understand this power. And, um, and, you know, again, you bring twenty-five or 30,000 people together and you give God that opportunity and he's going to move because he cares about the souls of all of those people that were there. So um, why did he do this? The men of the most depraved hearts and vicious habits were there, and they were made new creatures, and a whole life of virtue subsequently confirmed the conversion. So um, not only, guys, did they go through this, but their life looked different afterwards. And uh, I actually I want to read to you out of the book, which I didn't bring up with me, so give me just a second. I want to read to you a story that... Uh, thank you, Pastor. I want to read you the story of a, of a man that came to the revival. Um, not he, he was an antagonist. I told you that not everyone that came was there for good good measure, right? He came basically to to see it, but not really. He didn't go there to. He didn't want to partake in it. He wanted to kind of make fun of him. He describes himself in this as a very proud man, um, and his his name is Robert Finley. And uh, he, I wanted. I, it's going to take. It's going to take a little while, guys. I timed myself. So it's going to be about five or six minutes of me reading to you here. But I didn't think that I could do the same justice to you as this man describing what he went through himself. So I'm going to take this time. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to hear, uh, because I think he represents a lot of what the, the people that were at this meeting, who they were and what they went through during this process. All right. So this is, uh, this is Robert Finley. On the way to the meeting, I said to my companions, if I fall, it must be by physical power, not by singing and by praying. And I prided myself upon my manhood and my courage. I had no fear of being overcome by any nervous excitability or being frightened into religion. When we arrived upon the ground, the scene that presented itself to my mind was not only novel and unaccountable, but awful beyond description. A vast crowd, supposed by some to have amounted to 25,000, was collected together and the noise was like the roar of the Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm, and I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time, some on stumps, others on wagons, and one standing on a tree. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some were crying for mercy in the most piteous accents, while others were shouting most vociferously. While witnessing these scenes, a peculiar and a strange sensation, such I had never felt before, came over me. My heart beat tumultuously and my knees trembled. My lips quivered and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. 
A strange supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of mind there collected, and I became so weak and powerless that I found it necessary to sit down. Soon after this I left and I went into the woods, and there I strove to rally and to man up my courage. I tried to philosophize in regard regard to these wonderful exhibitions, resolving them into mere sympathetic excitement, a kind of religious enthusiasm inspired by the songs and the eloquent harangues. My, My pride had been wounded, for I had supposed that my mental and physical strength and vigor could most successfully resist these influences." So he's talking, guys, right? And, and he, he, he says, I'm, I, I wasn't here seeking God. I'm here as a prideful man. And, and I came and I told everybody, you know, this isn't going to affect me. God's not going to be able to touch me. And, uh, you know, you, and pastors talk about this. Sometimes you'll see people with, that are in line to get prayer at different events. And they're sitting there and they're, they're doing this. And they're, you know, they're convinced that they're not going to fall down. And, you know, that God can't touch them. And, um, but, you know, sometimes... If you come in contact with the, the most holy God that created the heaven and earth and everything in it, and, and you um, and you get touched, it's, it's going to be more than your little physical body has the ability to uh, to to withstand. So, um, after some time, I returned to the scene of the excitement. So he goes back for round two, and the waves of which, if possible, had risen still higher. The same awfulness of feeling that came over me uh, before came again. I stepped upon a log where I could have a better view of the surging sea of humanity, and the scene that presented itself to my mind was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 people swept down in a a moment, as if a battery of a thousand guns had been opened upon them, and then immediately followed shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. My hair rose up on my head, and my whole frame trembled. The blood ran cold in my veins, and I fled for the woods for a second time, and wished that I had stayed at home. So he was one of those that, that operated in that running exercise. He, he was going to run away. So, While I remained here, my feelings became intense and unsupportable. A sense of suffocation and blindness seemed to come over me, and I thought I was going to die. There being a tavern about a mile off, I concluded that I would go get some brandy and see if that would strengthen my nerves. That seems like a good idea, right? Um, so after some time, I got to the bar and I took a drink. And I left, feeling as that I was as near as hell as I wished to be, either in this world or the world to come. The brandy had no effect in allaying or or softening my feelings, but if anything, they made them worse. Isn't this like so many in the world? They they are like, man, my life is going through a rough time. And they they look to the things of the world to try to help them. They look to to drink or they look to, um, you know, even psychics or even psychologists. sometimes, Sometimes guys... There's nothing that's going to help you except the presence of God. And uh, so, and this gentleman is, is finding this out as he goes. So, night at length came upon me, and I was afraid to see any of my companions. I cautiously avoided them, fearing lest that they should discover the matter with me. In this state, I wandered from place to place in and around the encampment. At times, it seemed as if all the sins I had ever committed in my life were vividly brought up in an array before my terrified imagination. And under their awful pressure, I felt as if I must die if I did not get relief. My heart was so proud and, and hard that I would not have fallen to the ground for the whole state of Kentucky. I felt that such an event would have been an everlasting disgrace and would have put a file quietness on my boasted manhood and courage. That night, I went to a barn in the neighborhood, and creeping under the hay, 
I spent a most dismal night. I resolved in the morning to start for home, for I felt that I was a ruined man. Finding one of my friends who came over with me, I said, Captain, let us be off. I will stay no longer. And he assented, and we got on our horses and we started for home. We said little on the way, though many a deep, long-drawn sigh told the emotions of my heart. And when we arrived at Blue Lick Knobs, I broke the silence, which reigned mutually between us. Like long, pent-up waters seeking for an avenue in the rock, the fountains of my soul were broken up, and I exclaimed, Captain, if you and I don't stop our wickedness, the devil will get us both. And then came streaming from my eyes bitter tears, and I could scarcely refrain from screaming aloud. Night approaching, we put up near Maeslick, and the whole night was spent with me weeping and promising God if he would only spare me till morning, I would pray and I would try to mend my life and abandon my wicked courses. So guys, this is what this is what that the annual communions were about. This is what the tent camp meet or the camp meetings were about. You had a group of people and, and a group of men that that were hard men, right? These were frontiersmen. These were people that were willing to go where no one else was willing to go. And a lot of times to have that that backbone, um, you know, a lot of times that also means there's quite a bit of pride in these people. They were willing to go where it wasn't smart to go. A lot of times, uh, we haven't even, I haven't even really talked about um, it, it, at that time. The the Native Americans were um, were still basically at war with the colonists, and um, some of them had signed treaties and things. But for the most part, as these as the colonists were coming into the Kentucky area. They were viewing this as, um, you know, these people were intruders and they were invading their grounds. So the people that were there and that were willing to be there, you know, they weren't um, they weren't girly men, right? These were some these were some strong, proud guys. But at the same time, you know, they they hadn't yet given their life to the Lord, and, and for them to do that meant that they had to lay down their pride and, and to and to admit that there was one greater than them and one bigger than them. And a lot of those people struggled immensely with that, right? A lot of us have struggled a lot with that. Um, but on the other side of that, right, is the promise. And there's the life in Christ. And, and when, when these men, when they came to this realization, you're not less of a man. You're more of a man. And that's the, that's the lie of the world that so many men don't understand. They think that they're giving up the right to excitement and adventure. Um, and it's the exact opposite. A life surrendered to Christ you never know where you're going to go. You never know the adventure that's in front of you, but you know that it, it is an adventure, and you know that He's there with you and He's leading you in it. And each day is going to have excitement in it, and uh, and and that's what these men had to come and find. And I really believe that's why God came in such a supernatural way to this group of men, um, because the, a lot of these were, you know, this was the this was the beginning of America, and this kind of set the tone. For America as a nation, again, guys, we're 20 years past the the American Revolution here. So this is this is the infancy of us as a nation. All right. And I've got us a scripture here, Second Corinthians 5:17. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, uh, the new creation has come. The old has gone, and the new is here. So that old man passes away, guys, and a brand new creation is left. And that's why that's why they were here. Um, so the atmosphere of the meeting. Uh, I want you guys to again. I want I want this to be real to you. So think back. You know, 1800s. I want you to imagine you've probably all driven out into the country and you've been out somewhere where you look around and it's not like 
down here in Dallas or downtown Dallas or even the areas we're in, right, where there's buildings and there's supermarkets and there's roads. I want you to picture country, right? I mean, most everywhere you look, you see trees, you see rivers, you see field. This is this is where they were living. Um, at night, uh, there weren't street lights that out, right? They they couldn't turn on the halogen lights and light everything up. So um, there were thousands and thousands of candles and torches, and uh, they, because these meetings didn't just stop at, at when the sun went down, they they continued out through the night. So if you can imagine, you're outside, all around you, there's 25,000 people. They've got candles, they've got torches, there's uh, candles set up, there's tents all around. So the, the, the flames are reflecting off of the tent walls, and people are praying, and they're singing together. And you're seeing the supernatural manifestation of, of God. And I'm going to read to you a little bit about some of the people that were there. The spectacle that presented at night was one of the wildest grandeur. The glaring of the blazing campfires falling on the dense assemblage of heads simultaneously bowed in adoration and reflected back from the long ranges of tents upon every side. Hundreds of lamps and candles suspended among the trees, together with numerous torches flashing to and fro, throwing an uncertain light upon the foliage and giving the appearance of dim and indefinite extent to the depth of the forest. The solemn chanting of, of hymns swelling and falling on the night wind, the impassioned exhortations, the earnest prayers, the, sh- the sobs, the shrieks, or the shouts, bursting from under the intense agitation of the mind, the sudden spasms which seized upon scores of people and undoubtedly dashed them to the ground, all conspired to invest the scene with terrific interest and to work up the feelings to the highest pitch of excitement. And then Reverend Moses Hogue describes this. He says, The darkness of the night, the solemnity of the place and of the occasions, the conscious guilt, all conspire to make the terror thrill thrill through every power of soul and rouse it to awful attention. As to the work in general, there can be no question, but it is of God. So you guys have probably all had that experience where you felt God's power and you've known that He's there with you. And it's something that's it's, it'll raise the hair on your arm because it's not a it's not a fearful fear in that you're in trouble or you're in uh, it's a it's a solemnness of who the Almighty Creator is and, and an understanding of that. And now imagine you're experiencing that with twenty five thousand other people out in the wilderness, looking up at the stars, candle lights around you, singing, people being prayed for. I mean, I can't, I can't fathom and, and even imagine what that would have been like. And, you know, Pastor said last week that, you know, if he could build a time machine, this was where he'd want to go back to. And, and I have to say, I, I completely agree. I mean, just to see that and to understand what that would have been like uh, had to be amazing. So, um, guys, as we've gone through this series, uh, or going through these series on God's generals or revivalists, there's some things that, you know, I want us to keep in mind, right? There's some things that we said they are patterns of revival Things like prayer and fasting, uh, making room for God to move, living a holy lifestyle, uh, taking communion and honoring that sacrifice that Jesus made and uh, what the table of showbread and, and what the, the sacrament uh, represents. Uh, trusting God when you're stretched and when think, or you're seeing things that are beyond what you know. And then, you know, souls being saved and uh, lives being changed. And, and uh, these are all kind of things that we see and that are patterns. 
there's also revival warnings. And I said earlier when I prayed, when I started, I said, Lord, let us stand on the shoulders of those that have come before us. And I meant that. And also, we need to learn from the things that, that kind of hindered or might have quenched the revivals of their days. And, uh, it, you know, as kind of our, our duty is to understand this and to know that so that when that when the Lord pours out and the revival that he's, you know, that we're seeing now as it ramps up, uh, we're not going to, we're not doing anything to quench it. And, and we're, we're prepared and we're ready to take it as far as he wants to go with it. Give me a second. So a couple things I have here. Um, give God his due glory. So they said that during this time, if anyone tried to fit the works of God that were witnessed during these tent meetings into any kind of man-made doc- doctrinal box. So if anyone tried to you know, make this about, this is the Methodist revival or this is the Presbyterian revival, immediately the manifestations would stop. So God wasn't going to let man claim what he was doing. So that's something, you know, we have to honor God in all that we do. And when he moves among us, we need to thank him for that. And we need to turn all the, you know, all the praise back to him because it is about about him it's not about us um, not giving space to a religious spirit so in that time right um, many of the ministers um, and the of, of the denominations in Kentucky as these things were happening at Cane Ridge they thought they were out of order and they didn't think they were of God so their preachers that had participated they called them back and um, they they censored them and they basically silenced them. A lot of them they took their they they took basically their congregations away from them. And when you do that, guys, that's obviously not something that God God's going to approve of. So we need to make sure that while we're in revivals, we're not giving place to a religious spirit. And finally, be prepared and you know have discipleship ready. And this is something that pastor's been talking about for years with us, right? We need to. Um, be ready so that as the thousands of unsaved are coming in, we're ready to teach them the gospel. We're ready to give them the foundations of the Bible so that they have something solid to build their life on. And Peter Cartwright, who we're going to study about, um, maybe not next month because Pastor gave me a new assignment, but uh, in a couple months, uh, he's the next person in the Revivalist God's Generals book. Um, he had this to say. He said, I suppose that since the day of Pentecost, there was hardly ever a greater revival uh, of religion than that of Cain Ridge. And if there had been steady Christian ministers settled in the gospel doctrine and church discipline, thousands more might have been saved to the church that ended up wandering off in the mazes of vain speculative divinity and finally made a shipwreck of faith, fell back, turned infidel, and lost their religion and souls forever. And guys, we do have a responsibility to to raise up those that come to know us. And it, you know, it talks about the milk of the word. You got to give them the milk of the word so that as babies they can grow. And then as they start to as they start to grow, you switch that to the to the meat of the word, and you give them truth that they can build their lives on. And you equip them to stand up and to be Christ warriors, right? And and to be teachers and preachers and evangelists and pastors and apostles. And uh, you know that's that's a duty of the body of Christ today is to train up and to disciple those that are coming. All right, finally, guys, I want to talk about the effects of the revival. So the revival hit, and uh, a gentleman by the name of George Baxter visited Kentucky in fall of 1801, and he says it says he was amazed at the near utopia he found, and and God had burned with His Holy Spirit and cleansed this whole area. He, George Baxter declared it to be the most moral place he had ever been. 
I think the revival in Kentucky among the most extraordinary that have ever visited the Church of Christ. And all things considered, peculiar, peculiarly, that's a word, uh, adapted to the circumstances of that country. Um, infidelity was triumphant and religion to the point of expiring. Something of an extraordinary nature seemed necessary to arrest the attention of a giddy people who were ready to conclude that Christianity was a fable and a futurity of dream. The revival has done it. It's confound, it has confounded the infidelity. It has awed the vice into silence and brought numbers beyond calculation under serious impressions. So what he was saying, guys, is that um, you know when the revival hits, and, and we, we, we studied about this in the Wales revival too, if you remember, guys, right? in Wales, they shut down the taverns, they shut down the bars, they shut down the brothels. The same thing happened here in America. The people that were, that were part of this revival Afterwards, they lived holy. They were kind to each other. They were Christ-like to one another. In in the society, right? We, the the civilization that was around that and resulted because of that was one that reflected that. It reflected Christ's nature. Uh, so Kentucky and the United States would forever be changed. The camp meeting set the precedent uh, for America being seen as an evangelical nation. Um, and it became the first winds that flamed the that fanned the flames of the second great awakening in America. So, um, guys, again, hope you enjoyed this. It was a pretty amazing chapter. I, I really enjoyed hearing about what took place back then. Um, you know, 1800 we had the tent meetings. 1900 we had Azusa, and we've heard the uh, we've heard the prophecies that took place in Azusa that in nearly a hundred years it would come again and in a greater way. So that's what I ask you guys is to. To, to study these things, to, to put your faith behind that we're going to see something similar and, uh, and just to be ready so that when it comes that we're all together. So.